This is Inside Berkeley. I'm Kim Ashton. Back in January, we sat down with Kenny Warner, the artistic director of the Effortless Mastery Institute. He spoke about teaching musicians, and really anyone who wants to get better at almost anything, to access what he calls the master space within. Warner asks, do we give ourselves permission to be great beings, to play from the deepest part of ourselves? Often he says, we don't, but we can, and Warner's mission is to show us how. Hear what he had to say about it earlier this year. Kenny Warner, welcome to Inside Berkeley. Thank you, Kim. First off, I'd like to start off with what is effortless mastery? Effortless mastery refers to a specific act, whether something that you do from intellectual instinct or even motor skill, like walking, talking, or using a fork. So it's quite a complex action, actually, but you do it without thought, and you do it right every time. That's effortless mastery. How does one achieve effortless mastery? That's a long question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could say one already has effortless mastery, but loses it in the attempt to learn to play an instrument. So the way one achieves effortless mastery is a couple of things. One is to learn to stay in that master space. We all have that already. We don't have to have achieved a certain level of playing to claim that that space. It's within us. So it's a kind of a radical education idea of instead of leaving that space and getting caught up in the world of thoughts to try to learn, it's like learning from that space, which is a much more aware space, and things that you do from that space tend to be much more complete. So I guess it's easier to say why we can't be effortless mastery because of two things. One is on the training side, the other one is on the psychological side or even the spiritual side. The reason we can't be effortless masters when, uh, on the training side is that if you haven't learned to comfortably play in time, it's not going to magically happen. You have to support the space by becoming really masterful at playing in time, not just doing it well, but really become masterful. That means longer penetration into subjects until this real ownership not just a knowledge of. That's on one side. The other side is more psychological, is how we view ourselves. Do we have, give ourselves the permission to be great beings? Do we give ourselves the permission to play from the deepest part of ourselves and give ourselves the same permission that Miles Davis gave, instinctively gave? I mean, he didn't read a book. He just instinctively gave himself permission to be great. And if you assume that there's a master musician that resides within you, then you're going to learn the instrument to the level where you're not playing it, but that master space within you plays it directly through you. And that's the higher level of any kind of functioning, whether it's the soldier in battle. You know, it's that beautiful moment where things just happen. So who's doing it? Well, that's a philosophical question or a spiritual question that everybody can answer their own way. But you can practice getting out of the way so that it can be done through you. So if you practice with that, you know, the short answer, and that was even a long answer, is if you practice with an awareness of where that space is inside you, and you practice not leaving that space, instead waiting for the information to come to you, you may very well be building uh, the uh, awareness, the consciousness of effortless mastery. You're learning your instrument on a much deeper level because you're not in a hurry. Being in a hurry is in the mind. In the space, you focus on the moment and on the thing you're practicing. And coming from the space, you're giving yourself permission to be deep, great, whatever you want to call it. So why do musicians need effortless mastery? Uh, I don't know that they need effortless mastery. Well, you mean the book or the idea? The idea. 
Um, because many musicians are constricted, inhibited, held back by something. And if you follow the, everybody could say it's different things, society, this, that, I have no money, I have too much money, you know. But if you trace it all the way back, it goes back to you, the mind. There's something in your own mind that's keeping you from learning and going where you want to go in the shortest possible time. And those mental constructs create detours that lengthen the process, not shorten it. And in many cases, ensures that you never reach a destination. And is effortless mastery for advanced musicians or beginners or both? It's for all. The thing about advanced musicians, when they learn about effortless mastery, it's like they're discovering some great secret in their life and they're 20 years old. Or, but, you know, the reason it seems to be contrary to our training is because very often our first teacher is our worst teacher. And the, and the emphasis is not on connecting with the instrument or what does it feel like to play this instrument? It's immediately on read this whole note, read this half note. This is the scale. So if that's your first experience, then what's inbred in you is the notion to play correctly, play the right stuff, not to become the music. So if the emphasis started with that on in the very beginning level, it wouldn't be such a discovery when you're anywhere from 18 to 80 and all of a sudden you discover the true you, it would have been encouraged to begin with. So again, the short answer is everybody needs effortless mastery because they usually have uh, a circuitous route to where they're going because of the complicated roadblocks set up by the mind. You said that you grew up in a deficient environment for the arts and that that turned out to be a plus. Why was that a plus? Well, I grew up in Long Island, New York, and at least where I was, there wasn't any emphasis on art at all. I mean, of course, we had music. I don't mean in school. We had our music program. There was a lot more music programs back then than they typically are now. But just the sense of the neighborhood, uh, the people, it was all about, you know, getting and spending and playing, having fun and getting grades. And, you know, there wasn't that I was conscious of, a lot of artistic pursuit. So, for example, I played music totally from, I guess I'll play some music, not from some great tradition. So when I got to classical school, my first thing was a concert piano major, I felt guilty for not being as into classical music as all the people around me. And then when I got to Berkeley, I didn't feel so guilty because there was a lot of other confused people there like me that could find their way. Uh, you know, because it's not just jazz. The, the nature of it is improvisation. And I knew I was an improviser. So because I didn't have this background of awe about the tradition that I was doing, I just did it. I noticed later on that I had a little more detachment when I played than a lot of people around me. There's nothing wrong with having great respect for music, but it's not the best thing to be involved in as you're about to play necessarily. It could be the reason you can play because you're so awestruck by the people that have played the instrument before you. So I wasn't awestruck by that. I just played. You know, it was a great way to be popular in school, you know. And, and later on, I said, wow, there's a lot, there's kind of an honesty, not an honesty, but a clarity that comes from a detachment that I always had that I never thought much about. I don't know, does that explain Yeah, it? so you're saying that you were playing for the joy of playing, but not necessarily to impress somebody else or to sound good or to sort of meet some artistic ideal that you had in your mind. That's it, the last one. 
Mm-hmm. The first two, everybody's susceptible to it one time yeah. or another. But I didn't have an artistic ideal that I felt a responsibility to come. And I found that that gave me a freer perspective. In my case, maybe someone else would say not. But your question was, how do I decide that that was a blessing in disguise? And that, that's the answer. And you've also said that trying to sound good is a shallow goal. Why is that a shallow goal? Well, if we transpose it to talking, and you were talking with somebody, and I said, Kim, when you're talking to me, what are you, what's your objective? Kenny, when I talk to you, I want to sound good. <laughs> if you put it in that context, then you can see it easily. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that by the th- question I often ask people when I'm doing a lecture on effortless mastery is think about a time when you really needed to play well. How would you play? And everybody gets this fine look in their face. Oh, you know, thumbs down. They go thumbs down. And then think about a time when you were just fooling around and for some reason you didn't think there was so much on the line. How'd you play? They say, I played better. So how do you separate yourself from these internal demands that one makes of themselves? Well, these internal demands are thoughts. Thoughts reside in the conscious mind. The escape from those thoughts is to go into what I call the space. That space has a name in every religious tradition, spiritual tradition, in psychology terms. We all know it exists. And I got it from looking at the society. You know, in the 70s and 80s, you saw a lot of people going to ashrams and retreats. And what were they looking for? You know, you see a rich person, instead of going to Hawaii, they were cleaning toilets in an ashram. Why didn't they go to Hawaii? I mean, not that they didn't do that too, but Mm -hmm. what were they looking for that they couldn't even find on the shores of Maui? Mm -hmm. There's a space inside, and when we get there, we often tend to think, I've just found everything I was ever looking for. And then I could be on the beach in Maui, or I could be in a traffic jam in New York City, and I'm still in the same blessed space. It is also, that when you're in that space, you're not in your mind. When you're not in your mind, you're not so imprisoned by your thoughts, or you're not imprisoned by your thoughts at all. And so the art of life, I mean, in life, what the gurus and the spiritual teachers and all these books and everything are trying to do is teach us how to perceive life from the space, not escape from life, but be able to become part of it with total focus, because we're not being hampered by thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so when you wrote this book 20 years ago, was this concept of effortless mastery in the air, or was it something that sort of came through you? No, it specifically was not in the air back then, because musicians thought the answer to their lives was if they just played better. Mm -hmm. And all anybody cared about was, I want to be better. I want to be better than the next guy. And all that anybody got upset about or depressed is, oh, that guy plays better than me. And then if they said, he plays better than me, and he's two years younger than me, Oh, then they were even more depressed. So it was very much a myopic world of, I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't a love of music, but the preoccupation with oneself, how do I play, starts to trump one's love of music until one cannot find that love of music anymore. And many students that are listening to this podcast now are nodding their head yes as they're hearing it. This is a systemic problem, and it's also human nature. And I can so, imagine—oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so it wasn't in the air at all then. I find these days, and not just because I wrote a book, but in general, there's an awareness in the air that we're all buying into a delusion. That notion is, is thousands of years old, that we're really not separate beings. We're all one. It just looks that way, that we're all made of the same fabric, and this fabric is an energy that's scintillating, and in that scintillating energy is all the genius that exists. The more we identify with that, the less we identify with the illusion of separateness. So, you know, you could take this into world, the events of the world right now. And the reason I talked about it was that I started, when I started teaching, I started opening my mouth. That's what came out. Mm 
And I found people absolutely flawed by what I was saying. So after like about eight or nine years that I thought, I better write this down because there's a lot of cats taping my lectures. Mm-hmm. I think I better write this down. You know, it's like sort of coming out of me. So that's even how it happened. I never had a desire to assert some kind of teacherhood over anybody else. I'm struggling. I'm like trying to learn these lessons in my own life. But I've always had them quite naturally in my music. So I feel comfortable imparting the knowledge that you could apply to anything, but I'm applying it. The unique part of it is that I'm applying it specifically to how to get where you want to get to as a musician. My concert on February 2nd at the Berkeley Performance Center is also a day where we're sort of officially announcing the release of the 20th anniversary of the book Effortless Mastery. And um, Roger Brown wrote a, a beautiful introduction. He totally... It's great. It's great when the guy you work for at the top has such a good understanding and appreciation for what you're doing. There's no better feeling in the world. And the introduction he wrote is absolutely proof of that. Um, So we'll be announcing that. And my concert will, uh, part of the concert will be Joe Lovano and George Garzon, two old friends and Berkeley teachers and legendary musicians. Second half of the concert will be my trio with Ari Hornick and Johannes Weidmuller. You said there are some steps that a musician can go through to sort of help them along the way toward effortless mastery. What are some of these steps? Well, these are steps. I did. They became steps later. When I was teaching a bunch of people, they evolved. I would notice someone playing and their shoulders were up. Or And by the way, on any instrument, I would notice the tension that they were playing with that might have been mistaken at one point for I'm really into the music, but it's not. I just really care that I play good. And I would start to comment on that. And because I knew it, and I would even comment, at the exact moment the player shifted from just being there playing to I'm trying to play better, I would say, oh, right there you tried hard, didn't you? They go, how'd you know that? And I said, well, I don't know, I just kind of saw it. It's not being psychic. If you know what you, if you're thinking that way, you'll see it real quickly. You go, of course. As I taught them, the first thing I did was taught them to go back into the space and just touch the instrument. Then we moved on to, now let's move around the instrument. And if you get distracted from the space and start focusing on what you're playing, you you take your hands off the instrument. The third step was, can I play a simple form or a groove or tune or chord and not leave the space? That was the third step. Be able to play, you know, uh, intellectual structures, but I have to play them as simply as I need to to stay in the space. The fourth step became lifelong practice of how to actually perform on a higher level of precision and practice that way without ever leaving the space. So to, I, there's not the time here to explain how each one of those steps worked, but those steps evolved out of my intuitive working with people. What I kept doing is saying, no, it doesn't matter you played that line right. You just contorted your whole body to do it. Let's go back into the space and wait until your hand plays the line right. And it turned out to be a what everybody generally can agree on is a, a, a higher level of execution, a higher level of technical ability. So is that the ultimate goal of effortless mastery is a higher level of execution or is it something else? It can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, You know, I think of the Effortless Mastery Institute and I've been developing this idea almost almost recently. The great thing about suddenly having an institute is I'm understanding it clearer and clearer myself. What are we doing here? So to me, they're generally speaking, broadly speaking, there's three tiers. On one level, you're using the principles and practices of Effortless Mastery to get out of the negative patterns that you formed already from early childhood to now or the negative patterns, and this is the ugly little fact, is that a lot of the worst negative patterns get mostly ingrained by going to music school. 
You know, and that's like that subject that shall not be discussed like in <laughs> Harry Potter, he who shall not be named. So the one rung of it is to help reprogram that to reclaim or claim for the first time real focus. It's funny because the pattern and the thing behind you. The tapestry. The tapestry behind mm-hmm. you. Your head is in the middle of the most inner circle. And it's like <laughs> getting out of the, you know, what I've been using analogy lately is taking your mind out of the, uh, of the hurricane and putting it in the eye of the hurricane where everything is still and quiet, you can focus. So the, the first tier is undoing the negative consequences of going to music school. The second tier is sort of becoming more of a channel. You imagine music comes through you rather than from you. It generally creates a more profound level of music. And you empty yourself and you have to sacrifice. See, to do any of these things, you have to surrender your dearest possession. And if you're a music student, your dearest possession is needing to play well. If you surrender that, you actually, uh, paradoxically, find all sorts of great stuff. But that constant demand to play well is the thing that's blocking you from playing better. Mm. You know? mm-hmm. And the third tier is having become instruments for whatever this consciousness in the form of music to pour through. We discuss what are the reasons for playing music that can even have a stronger purpose than the music itself and so there we could be studying philosophy uh religions um spiritual paths uh psychology science we could be studying anything but then our job in the institute is to say now how does that play out in music let's say we discussed the ancient practice of meditation in which i'm not a teacher of meditation but let's say we experiment with that and say well now how does that apply to the music and so on the third tier we're trying to give people the opportunity to, to check out motivations. You know, at a certain point, you might get bored with the fact that you play great. Now, why am I playing? Why am I playing? We investigate on that tier through philosophy, looking at philosophy and inviting great, not just great musicians, but great beings to come talk to us. Like a, a Wayne Shorter, for example, has a philosophy that is wider than the music itself but it informs his music and could be said is one of the reasons his music is so special. So there it is. First, damage control, becoming a vessel, and then practicing, you know, looking for the deeper meaning in music, for your music, if not by studying different people's writings on the deeper meaning of life. And will this institute be for students or for faculty or for both? It is right now for students. There will be, I'm not sure when, maybe by next fall, uh, a certification, like a 10-credit certification. There's a complement of courses. It's not just my courses. It's Tai Chi, uh, Yoga, Alexander Technique, and Body Mapping. And in the fall, I think there'll be a few things added to it. And it'll just be a complement of things you can take, all aiming at the same thing. Take you out of that small mind and put you in that expanded space and then my job is to put that instrument back in your hand. You know, ostensibly it's for students. Uh, I think the vision is to have a place, you know, like a space, like a floor in a building. Not, we don't need a whole building, but a floor that's dedicated to that space. And I would like to, I look forward to the day where teachers are invited to dwell in that same space or practice the same thing if their hearts want to seek that. It should be available for everybody.
And I can imagine that these techniques also apply to other fields than music. They do. I get emails almost every day from somebody, and they're often not musicians. I mean, I got an email from a guy who had done three tours in, in Iraq as a male nurse, and the book is helping him with, with a traumatic stress you know, syndrome. I get golfers that shot the greatest golf. You know, it's one of those kind of books. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, a, it complied. And there's, there are artists, there are people in other arts that read it and even have it as required reading. There's a, there's a theater department you know, somewhere where they read it. You know, it does. It applies to any art. It can also potentially apply to any business, any pursuit. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny Werner, thanks so much for joining us at Inside Berkeley. Sure, thanks for having me. This episode was engineered by student Steve Shaw in partnership with The Burn. I'm Kim Ashton for Inside Berkeley.